following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. In terms of who's been implicated by the U.S. specifically, the other really big one would be Jack Warner because he, you know, by almost all accounts, was one of the two or three most corrupt people in all of world soccer. I mean, actually, he was known for doing things like setting up fake bank accounts that had the same name as the organization he worked for. And then when he would send the wire instructions, people would unknowingly send it to his personal bank account rather than the organization. And sometimes um, that would be for things that should be noble causes. Once there was an organization that sent, I think, somewhere between half a million and three quarters of a million dollars in aid to Haiti after that horrible earthquake they had a number of years ago. But the money never got to Haiti. It went to his personal bank account. Welcome to another edition of Forbes Sports Money, the podcast show that gets into the business of sports. I'm extremely fortunate today to have as my guest, Ken Bensinger, a reporter at BuzzFeed. Ken, as I'm sure a lot of you know, really broke the story at all the corruption going on around the World Cup. And uh, Ken, it's a big thrill to have you on as a guest today. Oh, it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks uh, to have me on the show. Hey, Ken, I'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, follow you and, and also uh, those that aren't journalists already you know, would really uh, uh, be interested in getting to know just a little bit about how you got into journalism, uh, investigative journalism in particular, and sort of how you, how you go about things over there at BuzzFeed. Yeah, um, so I've been a uh, journalist for a little over uh, 20 years now, um, and I didn't start out as an investigative journalist. I started out as a, uh, a beat reporter, um, uh, and I bounced around a little bit. I, I was at the Wall Street Journal at the beginning of my career, and I I covered things like uh, real estate and um, and had a good a good uh, period of time covering the uh, fine art market, uh, covering things like Sotheby's and Christie's um, back in the late '90s and the early early aughts. Um, then I spent some time in Mexico City as a freelancer, where I got some Spanish skills that lately have been really been paying off for me. Um, then worked uh, at Smart Money Magazine in New York. Um, uh, where I started to do longer projects that, that in retrospect might be thought of as kind of investigative in nature. Um, um, and then I went to the Los Angeles times where I, I covered the auto industry. And again, it was covering it like a regular beat. Um, and, uh, came across a couple stories that were more investigative in nature and, um, and worked on a very a long-term project there about, uh, cons- about consumer safety involving automobiles. And when that was over, they said, well, let's do investigative stuff and um, did a series of different investigative projects there and got the opportunity in, in early 2014 to jump to, to BuzzFeed, where they um, were launching a new investigative unit. And um, and one of the first stories I did for BuzzFeed was a uh, article about um, this fellow named Chuck Blazer. Um, and that, that article ran um, in June 2014, just before the World Cup. Um, and for those who don't know, uh, Chuck Blazer, uh, who is now deceased, um, was uh, for many years the most powerful American soccer official in the world. Um, he and he happened to be this kind of larger-than-life figure who um, uh, really was like out of a movie. Uh, he was uh, very, you know, immensely obese. He weighed uh, sometimes more than 400 pounds, um, uh, and he had this giant fuzzy beard looked like Santa Claus um, and was fond of dressing up in costumes um, for Halloween. And there's pictures of him all over the internet dressed up as Star Wars characters or as pirates with a parrot perched on his shoulder. Just a, really a, a larger than life character. 
Um, but it also turned out that he was immensely corrupt and over the course of his career um, stole or skimmed um, you know, millions and millions and millions of dollars from the sport and from different, uh, different deals that he oversaw. Um, so I wrote an article about, about him, and that sort of launched me looking into some of the corruption in soccer issues. And breaking away for a moment to thank Amica Insurance and LifeLock for supporting Forbes Sports Money. More about these sponsors later in the show. How did you get uh, turned on into looking into him in the first place? Uh, the, the roots of that are is that the former editor of the L.A. Times um, is a, was a man named uh, Devon Maharaj, who is from Trinidad. And um, uh, Chuck Blazer's partner in crime uh, for the 20-plus years he was, he was in this very powerful position um, was a Trinidadian named Jack Warner. Um, in fact, Jack Warner was the president of this confederation that they ran and and chuck blazer was his lieutenant and um uh chuck uh, jack warner in trinidad is a is a you know a notorious and a huge public figure um he was a high level government minister he was their their most powerful soccer official um just involved in, in a million things and so trinidad just extremely well known and um this editor kept telling me over and over again that i needed to learn more about jack warner who I'd never heard of. And when I started doing research on Jack Warner, I, I came across Chuck Blazer's name and sort of, I remember having a, a story list and putting the word Chuck Blazer in my story list thinking, you know, one day I got to write about this guy. Um, but I never had the chance to at the LA times it was just wrapped up in other projects. And so when I came to Buzzfeed, I mentioned that as one of my potential story ideas um, with the idea that the 2014 world cup was coming and that would be a, uh, a good time peg, as us journalists like to refer to, an excuse to write something. And um, so that was then number two on my list. And number one on my list was a story about um, uh, uh, sort of a conundrum in the art world, a hangover from one of my old beats. And um, that story fell through. And so um, when it fell through, we, we decided to do the Blazer story. So I, I guess the moral of the story is that sometimes things happen kind of by accident. Right. And your story back in June of 2014, Mr. 10%, the man who built and built American soccer. Um, did you ever get to talk to him? I spoke to him on the phone a few times, but very briefly. Um, he was very uh, short. With, I mean, he was polite, but uh, not very talkative on the phone. And a couple things were going on there. I mean, one, and he, as he said at the time, he was uh, very ill. And it's true. He had um, uh, type 2 diabetes because of his weight, but he also had uh, colon cancer at the time. and was going through pretty intense chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Um, and soon thereafter, I ended up going to the hospital and never leaving the hospital again. Um, so that, there was that. But what I later learned was also that he, at the time, was a secret government um, collaborator, a secret a secret government cooperator with the, with the Department of Justice, and therefore, under no circumstances, was he allowed to talk to the press. So um, that's that. It turns out that's why he couldn't talk. What What was it that he did, uh, Blazer, and and why was it, for lack of a better word, I mean six. I'll use the word successful, but from his end of it, in terms of uh, being able to bilk so much money from soccer, obviously, uh, as you and I both know, there's been a lot of corruption in international soccer for many, many, many years. But, you know, it uh, seems nothing of this magnitude by a single individual. What was the uh, secret of the success of his, his bilking? Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good question. I think he occupied a unique and special place because he had this um, very high level of power. He was not only was he the top, uh, the number two official of this this confederation that controlled soccer 
um, in North uh, and Central America and the Caribbean. But he also was one of the members of uh, what's called the executive committee at FIFA, which is the body that that rules sort of oversees all world soccer. So he was one of 24 members of this committee. He was the only American on the committee. And, and the last time an American had been on the committee before him was something like 50 years earlier. Um, so uh, he had a uniquely powerful position. And in almost any other country in the world would have been, have been a, a massive public figure under constant constant scrutiny something akin to maybe roger goodell of the nfl someone who you know anyone who followed the sport would know who it is and would be paying attention to every word he uttered but since soccer is um you know the fourth or fifth most popular sport in this country um it just doesn't get that kind of scrutiny and so he was able to operate a little bit in the shadows compared to other people in the world of soccer and that permitted him a lot of latitude in in terms of uh, of committing what will ultimately prove to be crimes that he confessed to. Um, and, you know, what he was doing, there was a couple, there was a bunch of different crimes he, he confessed to, but some of them were, um, uh, you know, essentially uh, taking bribes and kickbacks for different things. So he took, he took bribes in exchange for um, altering his vote on important FIFA issues. Um, he also took bribes and kickbacks from um, uh, sports marketing companies. These are sort of middlemen companies that buy rights to different sporting events and then resell them. So uh, this is particularly important in soccer since um, one organization might own the rights to something, but there are many territories that want to buy it. Uh, you know, they want to sell it in 200 countries or something, um, unless the soccer organization has a sales staff to sell TV rights to 200 con uh, countries. They're better off just selling them en masse in a, in a wholesale basis to one company that will then sell them elsewhere. And those marketing companies, um, it turns out, were bribing people left and right to give them good prices and exclusivity on those rights. And Blazer was someone who took took money for that. So that was another way he took money. And another, a third way he took money was simply skimming from the organization he worked at. Um, he had this very bizarre and unusual contract that he wrote for himself when he took the job. Um, that entitled him, according to the contract, to 10% of everything, every dollar of it came in in revenue to this organization. And um, he was very generous with himself and essentially um, uh, just, you know, took 10% of literally every dollar that came in. It started to become millions of dollars a year um, that he just considered his his just rewards for his for, work, for the work he did. Um, and, uh, you know, he used the corporate credit card for everything in his life. Um he used the, the corporation paid a big chunk of his not the corporation the organization paid a big chunk of his rent every month they bought him a car it bought him apartments in miami and in bahamas um the list goes on and on of all the things he took for himself it's incredible so they gave glazer a deal where he can just get 10 percent of the money coming in concacaf he gave himself a deal it's a, it, it was really <laughs> a truly one of those one of those Wild West stories where wow. he, he and this guy Warner in 1989 and 1990 conspired to take over the organization, and they did. And when they did, the organization, in fact, that just didn't have any money at all, really. I mean, it had you know um, a couple a couple rusty pennies in the in the in the safe somewhere, and that was it. And um, they went in and they wrote themselves contracts. Warner didn't take a contract, as far as we know, but Blazer wrote himself a contract, and Warner happily signed it. And the contract said, pretty short, basically said 10% of everything goes to me. And FIFA's and, signing off on this? I mean, isn't there somebody at FIFA who's Glazer's boss or who at least has jurisdiction over this who should be looking at this? Uh, you know, do they do they have to file, like, you know, an income statement or a budget or something, Ken? So a couple of things. One, I mean, A, there's a shocking um, 
uh, paucity of oversight in soccer, which is one of the reasons it's in such a mess now. Um, there wasn't, there should have been someone overlooking it, and I think the answer is maybe FIFA, but definitely the executive committee of CONCACAF should be have final authority. But um, they weren't either weren't paying attention or uh, were were told otherwise. I mean, I think very few people ever saw that contract. They kept it a secret, and in fact, most people in CONCACAF and, and the governance of it express shock and surprise when they when it was publicly announced a few years ago that, that such a contract existed so there's a decent chance that no one was looking no one was no one was um was watching the hen house so to speak and um and there's also the problem which is that blazer uh, had another uh, fun tendency which is to hide financial information so he didn't file tax returns either for himself or for Concacaf um for years if ever um one of the things, one of the crimes he was convicted of was tax evasion because he didn't file personal income taxes. Meanwhile, CONCACAF, which was a registered nonprofit, lost its nonprofit status with the U.S. government because it never filed tax returns. Um, and clearly one of the reasons for that is he didn't want anyone to know uh, what he was doing with all the money. So uh, your question is good. And the answer is essentially he hid it from everyone and people should have known, but he didn't let them see it. One of the things you point out in your story that broke all this, Ken, was that it was sort of Glazer's good fortune, if you will, that he realized the growth or the big money to come in soccer was going to be as its popularity expanded in the United States. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he, you know, um, he had a vision. I mean, uh, to give the man credit, I think everyone who knew him well said he was very intelligent and he had a, and it was a, uh, a had a real good feel for risk and, and opportunity. And he had a vision for the sport as a business that I think very few people did and took advantage of that. And his timing was really apt in that regard. And, you know, one thing is if he had just been a little more honest, he could have done a lot better and still made a lot of money. Um, but, yeah, he saw in the late 70s when he first got involved in soccer in Westchester County, um, New York, that that there was something in this sport, and he uh, he he'd been a sort of a uh, salesman who would hawk different kinds of promotional products, and he more or less dropped that and focused on soccer when, at a time when no one else thought of it as a way to make any money. And you you see in his career arc that he tried and tried different things, and nothing stuck until finally it did. And when he got on that, he didn't let go uh, until he was really he was forced to and had no choice. Um, and and that was right around the time when uh, the Internal Revenue Service and the FBI approached him and said, uh, you know, it's our way or the highway. So at that point, very soon after he left soccer, almost immediately after he got uh, wrapped up and became a government cooperator in the investigation. After your story broke, your initial one, Ken, did authorities contact you? Did FIFA contact you? Anyone? No, um, well, not really. I mean, it was, you know, it, it came in, in amid a, a lot of other, you know, talk about other problems at FIFA, you know, I mean, it was essentially the big story going on at FIFA around that time was whether uh, bribes had been paid or whether there was dirtiness involving Qatar winning the rights to host the World Cup in 2022. So most of the emphasis was on that. And I mean, the story was was well received and I got a lot of positive comments about it, but um, didn't hear anything about it. And that that kind of response until a year later, um, which was in in, uh, May 2015, when um, in the early morning, uh, Swiss police went into the fanciest hotel in Zurich and arrested seven soccer officials. And uh, at that point, the whole world suddenly woke up to the realization that the, the Department of Justice had been running a secret, massive investigation of soccer corruption for years and, was, and the dominoes were falling really fast. And that one of the most important uh, cooperators in their whole investigation was Blazer. 
Uh, it's absolutely incredible. Do you think he was being investigated uh, at the time and had already or had agreed to cooperate with the authorities uh, at the time of your initial story? Yes, 100 percent. He he was um, he was approached by the uh, uh, I mean, this, I've heard the story told now a couple of times by people who know he was approached by the IRS and the FBI in November um, 2011. Um, and he immediately agreed to cooperate. And so he'd been He'd been working essentially without 10 percent, by the way, but working for the government um, starting in late 2011 all the way through his guilty plea, which was um, uh, several years later. And then he continued to be sort of at the ready if they needed more. So um, he'd been secretly working for them for years. His health was so poor that by the by 2013, by 2013, beginning 2014, he no longer was useful particularly um as a as a collaborator um he you know he he couldn't get around he also had been excommunicated from from many soccer bodies at that point and so most of the people that they would want to get information on wouldn't wouldn't get near him he had become a bit of a pariah still the information he gathered in the first two years plus all the documents and resources he gave the government clearly was critical to the case can give me uh if you will please a quick uh sort of summary of how you, during your reporting of that first story, were able to connect all the dots. What were the avenues you chose? Uh, What was your method? And at the end of that first story, to yourself, what were you thinking in terms of FIFA and the overall corruption picture there? So, I mean, digging around, there's a lot of resources available um, from sort of diverse different places. Um, CONCACAF itself commissioned a uh, law firm to do an internal investigation of uh, of sort of the legacy of Chuck Blazer and and, uh, Jack Warner. That's a a hundred and something page document with lots of important information about what they're up to. Um, There were other reports and investigations and a and a stream of different documents that were pouring out of different places um, that that showed the kind of financial activities that he and Warner were up to over the years. And so if you can piece those all together, you get a sense. And then um, there was just a lot of sort of um, old-fashioned reporting of trying to find people who knew him and see if they could out- offer any content. At one point, I, we went to the courtroom in uh, White Plains where we – dug up the transcripts from depositions taken of him in the 1980s in a, in a um, civil lawsuit that I thought we, we really, we are the first to find those. And we loved them because they showed a lot about his character. He, he was being sued by his neighbor um, because he, his neighbor had lent him $20,000 or somewhere around there and Blazer refused to pay it back. And, you know, in light of the amount of money he took later, it was a trivial amount of money, but it showed that even before he was uh, an, 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 important figure at any level of soccer he he was someone who who was willing to bend the rules to his own advantage um and uh you know that those same documents later showed how he when running at what would ultimately be a failed soccer league called the american soccer league um in the late 80s um man contrived to pay himself um, a higher salary than anyone else any player in the league and in fact at one point, his salary um, was higher than the uh, combined payroll of any of any of the teams. I mean, he made more than every single player and manager on one on some of the teams. Ken, what so, about the guys? I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, before yeah. I forget, like, 
the, the guys that he was bilking, you know, like these media rights holding companies who uh, had the rights that he was, you know, uh, basically getting kickbacks from. Did any of them talk to you or, or want to come forward, uh, especially once they started to get a feel for it? Because I know how this works, right? You, you're talking to one source and sometimes that source will let it be known to other people that, hey, there's this guy, he's uh, digging around and asking questions. And sometimes that can work to your advantage where somebody who has, uh, you know, uh, been part of this and feels like they've been taken advantage of will anonymously, you know, come forward and say, hey, you know, you, you're on to something. Look here, 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 too. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a lot of people came out of the woodwork with different tips here and there, some really useful, some not. Um, and, you know, I will say that in the, the marketing guys aren't going to come because they, it's true that they were, you know, well, I mean, you have to understand that they were they were bribing Blazer and others um, to their own advantage and were aware that what they're doing was a crime. So they wouldn't want to talk about it. And they didn't feel ripped off. They, you know, by paying the bribes, they thought they were getting an advantage because they were shutting out competitors. But certainly there are people in the world of soccer who felt ripped off. Um, the stakeholders, you know, the, 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 the officials who didn't take money, um, the fans, the, the, the many different levels of people who were affected by, by the sport who didn't get any profit and actually suffered the the lack of money were, were good examples i mean you really see this effect in south america where i go often um and if you go to soccer stadiums in south america where they're absolutely over the top obsessed with soccer they're the, just the they're the worst quality stadiums you can imagine i mean they make a, like a like a high school football stadium in an impoverished town in america look like a palace you know these are buildings they don't even some of them don't even have bathrooms on them at all and, 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 you know, forgive the vulgarity, but I've seen people actually just going to the bathroom there in the stands because there's nowhere to go. Um, and so you see the way that the money doesn't filter down there at all. Um, but because it's really the only sport that people care about in these countries, they have a sort of a monopoly on the, on the eyeballs and the attention of the public and can get away with essentially stealing from, from the fans and those who develop in the game um but where you do get tips is you know from insiders these organizations who are disgruntled and tired of the of the abuses um uh we haven't talked about it yet but you know the the result of this um project of this article and so follow-up articles was i ended up um, agreeing to do a book which i've been working on and almost done with and that book uh was a, a larger sweeper sweeping look at the whole criminal investigation and i had people helping me in all kinds of secret ways um, to to further the knowledge of what happened. Um, an example is there was a, a, a FIFA insider who in Switzerland gave me an unauthorized tour of the FIFA headquarters and showed me places inside the building that aren't open to the public um, so I could sort of give a, a, a good description of what it looked like and how it felt to be there. Um, there was lawyers and others who had knowledge of the criminal case who showed me uh, documents and memorandums and uh, uh, other things from the court case and the, and the criminal investigation that otherwise wouldn't be public were vital to understanding how it all worked. So there was a, a long string of that kind of help um, that, to, to bring the story to life and to make sense of it. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Doing a lot of holiday shopping from your mobile device? Retailers expect 54% of holiday shoppers to visit their sites from mobile devices. Scammers see this as an opportunity to steal your credit card information and other personal data by distributing phony retail apps. Be cautious and only download apps from reputable app stores and read the reviews for any complaints about malware. One in four people have experienced identity theft. If you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways you may not detect. 
Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity threats. If you have a problem, U.S.-based restoration specialists will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. LifeLock can uncover threats that you might miss. Join now and get 10% off with promo code Forbes. Call 1-800-LIFELOCK or go to lifelock.com and use promo code Forbes. That's Forbes to save 10% now. Have you come up with a title yet for your new book and when do you plan on publishing it? The title is called Red Card, which uh, we think fairly sums up with the story here. Red Card, of course, in soccer is the is the penalty given out by the uh, referee, or the, um, which is ex- uh, expelling a player from the game. So if a player takes... Uh, commits a foul so egregious that it that uh that it passes a certain line of misconduct they show a red card and the person has to leave the game and can't come can't come back and can't play the next game and also the team plays shorthanded plays with one less player so uh we we felt that that that, uh, adequately described what this criminal investigation has sort of meant to soccer so that book um is uh, being published by simon and schuster here in the u.s um and it's coming out in June, just before the next World Cup, which, of course, is being held in Russia. So um, I'm excited about the book, and it's going to come out in June. How big, dollar-wise, uh, do you think this corruption was with Glazer? So him in particular, they calculated that he personally, they could, they, the accounts they could get on him was that they, uh, the, these are the lawyers who, who forensically investigated the CONCACAF books, they calculated that he personally um, took at least $21 million from the organization, but they didn't have any reckoning of the bribes. So their investigation was strictly about the skimming, the 10%, that sort of thing. Um, if you take into account the bribes, it's far more. And uh, I haven't seen a full accounting of that, but it's many millions of dollars more. And that's one person. So, uh, you know, if we're being conservative, we say it's somewhere around 30 to $40 million for him. You know, and you, you talk about other officials, it starts to get really big. Uh, there's a... There, the, the government um, just announced how much it thought these three relatively minor South American soccer officials took. In between them, it was about $25 million. And um, there was a fellow who testified in this trial I've been watching who said that he personally paid, um, if I uh, don't remember incorrectly, he personally paid $160 million in bribes over the course of his career. There's another fellow who ultimately, a Brazilian who testified with the government, and he he, he, he was paying bribes since the late 80s regularly and in increasing amounts to just a, a huge panorama of officials. So, and this is all just North and South America. Everyone I've talked to who knows this world says it's rampant in, uh, in pretty much every other part of the world, including Europe. Um, and so we're talking about uh, literally millions of dollars of bribes a day on an average basis wow. around the world and, you know, billions of dollars collectively. How does all this stealing hurt the sport of soccer you touched on it a little bit with the stadiums in south america how dilapidated they are um but for our listeners who may not know you know how should the money flow in fifa in terms of for what it brings in and how is should it be distributed to, to get a handle on actually how this stealing uh, actually hurts the sport not just the credibility but the actual economics of of, of some of these countries and cities that host these events Right. So, so I, it's good that and it's perfect. This comes in a, on a, a Forbes podcast um, be, because, you know, it's a, it's a question of sort of 
the, the way free market economics probably should work and the way it, this interferes with that, which is that um, in theory, if a soccer organization has rights to something, right? So they have the, they have the sponsorship and advertising and television rights to a tournament, let's say, you know, the World Cup, which is the most famous tournament in, in soccer and maybe in, in all, all sports um, with an audience, you know, multiple times larger than the Super Bowl. Um, they have the rights to this. It belongs to them. And they they sell it to them. Uh, they want to sell it to a middleman type company that will then, you know, resell all the rights to different places around the world. So uh, the probably the correct free market way to deal with that is to open for bid and let different interested parties make bids and then the you know the best bid which is usually a combination of the highest price with the most competence wins and then they get and then they pay that the sort of maximizes the value for fifa and then the money that comes in fifa can distribute to its different confederations and associations etc um but if someone pays a bribe, if one of those middleman companies approaches a FIFA official with power and says, listen, I'll pay you a few million dollars under the table um, in exchange for you giving me the rights to the World Cup um, at, a, at a reduced price and also not taking bids from anyone else, then the opportunity cost of, of FIFA having taken that particular bid rather than others is, could be rather large, right? Because the, the value that it receives for the rights could be massively below what it should be instead of... If, if five people bid, it might be, you know, X billion dollars. But if only one is allowed to bid, they might get it for less than a billion dollars. I'm just making up numbers. And so all the money it could have gotten it, it evaporates and never happens. And on top of that, um, the bribe money itself obviously was money that was dis- disposable and could have been given to the organ- to FIFA instead of to the individual. And so all that money that never came in is a, is a direct damage to FIFA or whatever organization was selling the rights. And what those organizations are supposed to do with the money is it's supposed to trickle down to, uh, to you know, the teams, to, this, to, to construction of stadiums, to a development in particular of the sport. So we're, think, we're talking about youth soccer. We're talking about providing equipment, balls, fields, um, training facilities for young youth players and you know in rich countries like germany or france or uh uh you know brazil perhaps uh, at least in the development level there's there's funds and they have great soccer but there's lots of countries around the world with large populations that don't have any money for that kind of thing you know countries in, in africa like nigeria which i must have close to 100 million people don't have the money coming down to them to help develop players and so their while their soccer is okay it could be a lot better if kids were given a chance to, to, you know, have the facilities and opportunities available to them. And so that's sort of, that's the victimization chain is it, it spills down. And, and, the, and the people who get rich off this are the corrupt soccer officials who take the bribes, but in particularly, particularly the sports marketing companies who, you know, who, who cheated the market and got um, things for a fraction of the price. And we've seen, uh, you know, like a, there's a Brazilian, um, a sports marketing official who was bribing people forever and got uh, became nearly a billionaire. I think he had you know hundreds of millions of dollars in his fortune. Ended up owning stuff all over Brazil, owned newspapers, owned TV stations, owned um, uh, farms and giant agricultural concerns, and all of that wealth came from as a as a product of him bribing soccer officials and getting rights deals for far less than they than he should have had to pay for them. Absolutely incredible. You know, I have to tell you, Ken, I don't see the outrage, you know, here in the United States over this stealing that I would expect to. You know, I mean, you've done a great job outlining the corruption, outlining the costs of that corruption to the to the sport. But 
when it's the lot, you know, the water cooler conversation and people are talking about, you know, the World Cup, I don't hear anything. You know, it's like, yeah, I read this, I read that, and it's on. What do you, is it just me, or is there is there some sort of lack of moral outrage here uh, about all of this? Well, I think that it's it's something I've been thinking about this week because I've, I've um, as I as I hinted at earlier, I've been covering. Um, a trial, so the criminal case that we we've been talking about finally uh, it led to many many guilty pleas and many arrests and that sort of thing, um, but finally also led to a criminal trial which is uh, happening as we speak and um, uh, that trial is of three lesser officials, but it, it's it's allowed us to, to allow the government to air out a lot of the dirty laundry in the case and the reaction has been really interesting because um, in in the U.S. there has not been a lot of outrage and not a lot of interest. Meanwhile, in South America. It has been uh, major front page news and everyone's sort of uh, uh, furious and foaming at the mouth as upset they are about this. So I think my conclusion from that is part of this is, has to do with a sports culture issue, which is soccer um, continues to be a relatively minor sport in the U.S. compared to other countries. Um, you know, it just is far behind uh, uh, football, baseball, basketball and even hockey still. And so um, I think it just doesn't capture the public, the widespread public imagination the same way. Um, that's part of it. And I think, um, secondly, uh, is that I think that even though the specifics of the corruption weren't known, I think that everyone sort of over the years of hearing the drumbeat of bad news about FIFA have sort of decided in their head, well, clearly FIFA is a corrupt organization. And so what's, is it really a surprise how corrupt it is? And so I think people were sort of preconditioned to, to hear that it's corrupt. Whereas, you know, I think if we heard a similar thing about a different sports league, we might be surprised because we think somehow think they're squeaky clean, you know. Baseball throws out Pete Rose for life for for allegedly gambling. Well, that's all part of it saying we're a squeaky clean organization, whereas, you know, the just the depraved, horrendous acts that people in soccer commit without a punishment for years underscores the image of this organization that uh, doesn't do anything about its problems and doesn't and doesn't sort of, you know, clean out its closets. Yeah, I mean, it's so crazy. I think, it's I mean, here in the United States, if, a, if an NFL player uh, wore a patch a sponsor patch on a sock that the league uh, doesn't allow, that would get three days' worth of massive social media and coverage on, on all the news outlets. Uh, and this, where you have people, lots of people going to jail, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, being stolen, and it gets, like, no coverage, you know? And, and that's why I think it's all backwards. I mean, I, I just... How about the sponsors, Ken? What has been their reaction? You know, there's, there's a, I guess, what are there, maybe a dozen huge, huge sponsors, or they call them partners for the World Cup, whatever the name is, that, that really put in the most money. Have, has there been any pullback from them? Yeah, so um, uh, before I address that, I wanted to just say one thing. Yeah, to give you a sense of how, how strange the, the, the lack of attention to this is, one of the crazy things that came out of the trial, I don't want to forget to mention, is that in the second day of testimony, this Argentinian sports marketing guy testified to the fact that he uh, bribed, uh, on top of bribing um, soccer people, he bribed two Argentine government officials, uh, millions of dollars. And that was new news. No one had ever heard that before. And within three hours, one of those officials committed suicide. Um, as soon as he said the name, it got out in the Argentine media, and this person left a note for his wife and jumped in front of a train. The truly horrific thing to happen um, and when I told my editors, I said, this is a crazy story. We should write this story. They said, eh, whatever. And they didn't, they just weren't interested in that story. And I think it, to me, that kind of blew my mind because I just didn't understand why, uh, why that wouldn't be a bigger story. Why it wouldn't play bigger in the U S. 
Um, so I think that underscores again that, that strange dichotomy. Um, in terms of sponsors, um, yeah, I mean one of the one of the original and really important sponsors of FIFA was Coca Cola, um, and has continued to be. And um, other big American brands like Budweiser and, and a bunch more have. Um, over the years, sponsored soccer at many different levels, and in in the light of all this, some of them canceled. So Coca Cola didn't cancel, but there were a number of sponsors that did pull out of FIFA or issue stern warnings to FIFA, saying essentially, "Clean up your act, we're out of there." And um, and I, it certainly did lead to some changes in FIFA, and they changed some of their governance rules, and they uh, and they worked, you know, to do things like add more women to their different governing committees. Um, and to uh, try to make things more representative and change the rules about voting. Um, and some people think those are good. Some people think they're just cosmetic. Uh, a third argument is that while sponsors are still extremely important to FIFA, really, uh, and, and uh, the balance has shifted and TV is where the real money is. So, um, you know, uh, it used to be in the 70s, 80s, and even into the 90s, the most of the money FIFA and the organizations got were from big, big sponsorship contracts. But um, once TV... Uh, uh, became more dominant and all over the world suddenly it was the tv money that led first so i think you know more than half uh, i think more than 60 percent of all fifa revenue comes from tv so ultimately that's the most important thing to feed and there's still a public uh, appetite to see the sport i mean as as corrupt as it clearly is as dirty as the sport is and as suspicious as the fact that it's being held in russia next year uh, is I can guarantee you everyone around the world is going to watch that tournament and they're not going to be turned off from watching the sport despite the corruption, um, which is one of the curious things about it. I mean, if, if, a, if I don't know, if, a, if everyone in the neighborhood found out that the local bakery was selling tainted bread, no one would buy that bread anymore. But apparently when people find out that soccer is tainted, they still watch it. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Sports Money podcast and the following message comes from Amica Insurance. We're living in the age of the discerning shopper when savvy consumers increasingly favor brands that value authenticity, ethics, and a great shopping experience. Amica is committed to being a company people trust. Visit meetamica.com Forbes and find out why 95% of Amica customers with combined auto and home policy stay with them. One more time, that's meetamica.com slash Forbes to find out more about Amica Insurance. Respect is not given. A hearty welcome to Steve Kerr. What a thrill to have listened to you all these years. It is earned. He's basketball Hall of Famer John Calipari. You okay. still have the great voice of all time. Sound of Success, the Dick Enberg Podcast. Tennis Hall of Famer Billy Jean King. I just hope everyone listening understands what an icon you are. Exclusively on Podcast One Sportsnet. He's my all-American friend Bill Walton. Dick Enberg. I love you. Get episodes every Thursday on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. When tracking the domestic dust bunny, you commonly find them hiding under wardrobes next to lost socks. Don't move too suddenly or they'll scurry off. What's utterly fascinating about the dust bunny is that although they are not actually sentient creatures, when they hear that Geico not only saves people money, but also has a 97% customer satisfaction rating, it's obvious to them you should switch. Because, yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. Oh, no. It's the Dust Bunny's only natural predator. Run along, Dust Bunnies. Run along. Yeah, at the end of the day, too, what it seems like is that FIFA is not going to suffer any economic consequences. I mean, the TV rights are still going up. Uh, you know, you pointed out there's a trial going on right now as we're, as we're having this chat. And one of your more recent stories 
was Fox Sports bribed officials, says prosecution witness in FIFA trial. That was in mid-November. Now, meanwhile, you've got this mega deal happening being announced today, actually, between Fox and Disney, right? Uh, Disney's buying some entertainment assets from Fox, some of them being its uh, regional sports networks, I guess, uh, movie production. You know, while this is being revealed in court, this other deal is happening with Fox. So my takeaway from that is no one seems, we, we mentioned this not having negative impact on FIFA in terms of the economics. This stuff coming out about Fox officials uh, supposedly, you know, bribing officials at FIFA that's not going to have a negative impact either on the company, you know, because I mean, which are, I realize they're different assets, but you're buying a brand. They're buying, you know, part of it. One of it's going to be Sky, which is in Europe that, that Disney's going to be buying. Um, it just uh, it seems to be detached from reality, you know, is it's I, like a completely separate thing. I couldn't agree more. I mean, Foxwood is a good example. This this came up in the first couple of days of testimony, and this official says, you know, I, I worked, I partnered with many media companies throughout my career, and Almost all of them, with one or two exceptions, were involved in one way or another in bribery and corruption. And they said, well, which ones? And he named them. And he named Fox and he named uh, Televisa, which is a huge Mexican broadcasting uh, media company, and Globo, which is a huge Brazilian media company. And he said they were all you know, you know, either actively or uh, uh, complicitly in, in paying bribes. And you know, um, at one point, we were shown a document. Uh, in which it was, which was a fake contract, a contract that um, uh, that was designed simply to hide a bribe payment, a million, multi-million dollar bribe payment, and it was signed by an employee of Fox. So they showed them, they showed the jury, they showed the whole room this contract with a signature of a Fox employee that was a fake contract just designed to pay a bribe, and um, uh, you know, kind of a shocking uh, proof of, of serious serious criminal acts by an employee of a major media company. And when I wrote, when we went, reached out to Fox for comment, Fox acted like they had nothing to do with it. And that was their, their statement was that, you know, here, I'll read the statement right now. Any suggestion that Fox Sports knew of or approved of any bribes is emphatically false. Well, it wasn't, you know, it's not a suggestion. It's just a contract that we saw. So I, it, it's, it's kind of amazing how nothing has happened from that. I mean, there's a civil suit against Fox, but, you know, one would wonder whether anyone's going to take any kind of more serious action. Where, where do we stand now, Ken, in the in this investigation in terms of, you know, uh, the big people that have been implicated uh, or companies that you think possibly could be, could uh, be damaged from this? Uh, and, and, and where do you think this investigation is headed? Is, is it almost over or do you think there's a lot more here? So the, the investigation, you know, is one of the by all accounts, is one of the most massive investigations uh, uh, of money laundering that the U.S. government has ever undertaken. So um, it's just a huge amount of resources and time, and they've gathered a massive amount of material. I think what, what we've seen in court is just, um, to use a cliched expression, the tip of the iceberg. I think there's a ton more out there, and I think they've, they've, dug, they've dug into a lot of stuff. Whether that comes to light ever, I think, depends heavily on the verdict. There's The jury, I think, today or tomorrow is going to be handed the case, and that will have to deliberate and make its decision. And I think, um, fairly or not, it's going to be a yardstick of a way to measure whether this investigation was successful or not. Because if these 
three gentlemen, it's a Peruvian, a Paraguayan, and a Brazilian, if they're acquitted, um, I think that that's going to be a major blow to the government investigation. and We may see them lick their wounds and go home. But I think if they get convictions, it's going to, it's going to give more juice to their continued investigation and we could see more in the future. And there have been a few hints here and there that this investigation is far from over uh, and given the chance they'll do more. One of the most telling was that in uh, May or June of this year, a guy pleaded guilty in a related case, in the case, basically. He really pleaded guilty. Um, and what was interesting about him is he's from Guam, which is a U.S. protectorate, not a big soccer country, but it does have a soccer association. And unlike all the other countries we've seen directly involved so far, Guam is a member of a different one of those confederations we talked about. Guam is uh, belongs to a confederation that oversees all of Asia. And um, it, it, it was a singular kind of event. Why are they suddenly busting this minor official from Guam? Well, a lot of people think that is a sign that they're they're going after another region of the world next. And that given the chance, given the opportunity, we're going to see people from the Asian Asian world of soccer go down. And, I, you know, to clarify, FIFA's definition of Asia is huge. It extends from um, the Middle East all the way over to Japan. So it includes countries like Qatar, which hosts the, world 20, the 2022 World Cup, and Saudi Arabia, and Iran, and all of that stretching all the way over. So... It's a, it's a huge swath of territory in a place that has been accused of lots of corruption. So if this goes forward, we can see it get there. And, and then, of course, the final question is whether it ever gets to Europe um, uh, where, where FIFA is based. And, you know, it's worth noting that the Swiss, in reaction to the U.S. investigation, have their own criminal investigations going on. So we may uh, see something come out of those. At the end of the day, Ken, does Qatar end up hosting the 2022 uh, World Cup, do you think? I mean, that's the million-dollar question or the, or the billion-dollar question in this case. Uh, to this point, everyone in Zurich swears up and down, left, right, and sideways that it's going to happen. We've already seen them move the, the timing of it. The World Cup has always been held in June and July. Um, and now for 2022, for the first time, it's going to be held in December. And the reason is because the weather is so incredibly hot there in the summer that they it, it, it would literally be a physical threat to the health of the players to play in that weather. And so they moved it to December, but that causes all kinds of other spillover problems. It has all the soccer, professional soccer leagues up in arms because their season, that's right in the middle of their season, it would be very disruptive. So um, we're already seeing that as a problem. Um, and a lot of people think that uh, that it, sort of there's people behind the scenes furiously looking for a way way to, to yank, yank, you know, yank that away from them. I don't, I don't know. I, I would say it's a 50-50 at best at this point um, because I think there's so many people within FIFA still who have a vested interest in it being in Qatar. I do think, though, that if it is canceled from Qatar, there's not too many places in the world that can take over the World Cup in, in, in a short space of time. And the most obvious candidates are probably the U.S. and, and, and England to Britain because they have uh, pr- we both have pretty large, mm. formidable infrastructures already in place. Ken? Who do you think, uh, other than Glazer, you know, obviously who you've written, uh, broke the story about, who do you think is the biggest fish that uh, has been implicated so far and uh, in, in this whole FIFA scandal? And, you know, aside from the biggest person or most important person, is there somebody whose name has popped up that's been implicated or uh, suggestions have been made? in these uh, in this court process that may have done something illegal that you think has kind of flown under the radar of, of, of the mainstream press but could actually be very important to FIFA? 
Yeah, that's interesting. So um, in terms of who's been implicated by the U.S. specifically, you know, I think Blazer was big, but the other really big one, big ones would be Jack Warner, who I mentioned earlier, because he, you know, by almost all accounts was one of the two or three most corrupt people in all of world soccer. I mean, actually, some of his corruptions even put uh, Chuck Blazer to shame. You know, he he was known for doing things like setting up fake bank accounts that had the same name as the organization he worked for. And then when he would send the wire instructions, people would unknowingly send it to his personal bank account rather than the organization. Um, and one of the things, and sometimes um, that would be for things that should be noble causes. Once there was an organization that sent, I think, somewhere between half a million and three quarters of a million of dollars in aid to Haiti after that horrible earthquake they had a number of years ago. But the money never got to Haiti. It went to his personal bank account. So, you know, it's pretty awful to steal money from basically people who are, are suffering from an earthquake. Um, he's been indicted, um, but he's hiding in, or not hiding, but he's in Trinidad and has been resisting extradition. So he hasn't been called to get brought to justice yet, but he's a huge name. And if they ever got their hands on him, there's really no telling what kind of what kind of things would spill out from that. Another person who uh, they were after and would have been indicted um, uh, was a guy named Julio Grandona, who was from Argentina, and he was um, probably the second most powerful man in all of soccer. Um, he was the, the chairman of the finance committee at FIFA and the the, the, the top vice president of FIFA, and he um, uh, ruled all of South American soccer with iron hand, and he. Um, was was really the one who made most of the financial decisions for FIFA. An incredibly powerful guy, deeply, deeply, profoundly, shockingly corrupt at almost every level. And really, people who have met him personally have told me the closest thing they've ever met in real life to a, to a movie mobster from the mafia. This is a guy who um, sort of uh, growled rather than talked, um, wore a, a gold pinky ring that said todo pasa, which means every, anything goes, um, and would meet people in these kind of mafia-like locations rather than in a nice formal office he would meet them in strange isolated gas stations and in hardware stores and places like that and negotiate middle of the night deals um he was a central focus of the investigation but then he dropped dead of a of an, an aneurysm or a blood clot or something in right after the 2014 world cup so they, they couldn't indict him um so those are sort of the big figures in the the biggest figures in the U.S. investigation. The third would be this guy named Ricardo Teixeira, who's a Brazilian who's hiding out in Brazil where they don't extradite uh, their citizens. Um, and he was involved in sort of corruption at every level of the game and was deeply tied in with some some uh, things that we, you know, with companies like Nike, who has been accused of uh, paying kickbacks um, uh, over many years of many, many millions of dollars. And he's also, he's very tied to Qatar, Qatar, it's uh, people that can pronounce it um, and there's a lot of insinuation that he took millions of dollars to, to vote for Qatar so he he's a huge and dirty figure and he's fun because his um, father his former father-in-law was another Brazilian who was president of FIFA for many years and kind of invented FIFA corruption so those are the big figures in the US investigation the Swiss meanwhile are targeting Sepp Blatter who was the former president of FIFA for many years and they're going after him for different financial improprieties. So he's a he's a huge figure. Um, and I think, you know, personally, in terms of dark horse kind of corrupt figures we might see, you know, there's a few there's a few different companies that have been below the radar um, that I think, think that officials have looked at a little bit. And it'd be interesting to see if they take action. One company I think is very interesting is this Mexican British company called Match and Match since the since the eighty six World Cup have had a hand in the ticketing for the World Cup and it turns out that 
um, ticket sales has been a way where a lot of officials like Jack Warner have made a lot of money on the side. They get the right to buy huge blocks of top-level tickets to World Cup events, and then they scalp them for huge amounts of money. Um, and this same firm also was involved in uh, uh, doing all the hospitality and accommodations and travel contracts for the World Cups. And so this is kind of the firm that would have the black book of every dirty deed of many, 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 many people. Wow. And, and if that firm ever got um, uh, in trouble and had to open their books, I think a lot more heads would roll. I, I would say so. So... I mean, this is just this is just an enormous scandal, and it seems, if I'm understanding what uh, you're saying and and my interpretation of what you've written is, there's no like one head of this, uh, you know, sort of like a mob family. I mean, this is just a, a it's like every man for himself doing whatever deals they can that, that they can get away with. Yes, and no to that because right. I think one of the arguments the government is making is, in fact, it is a lot like a mafia because it's got this structure and there is a boss, which should be the president of FIFA, and um, and you know it's it, and, and you know the way the real mafias work is that while the boss runs the show, lots of people within the family tree have their own little side deals going on, and I think it's kind of like that. There's a there's a central mission of FIFA and there's a central corruption of FIFA, but then each little confederation and association has their own little side hustles they do to make money on the side, some of it um, without anyone knowing it, and some of it with a tacit approval of people above. Because I think one thing I failed to mention earlier is that when you asked about uh, whether, why is it there are more oversight, and I think one of the reasons is because of the politics of FIFA. Um, all these people need to be elected. And so, um, so much of, of what happens has to do with patronage and making sure that people get the votes. Bladder may or may not have been corrupt, but he let... He essentially turned a blind eye to corruption because by allowing these people to do their dirty deeds and, and giving his approval or his at least his failure to reprimand them, he was purchasing their votes so he could stay in power. And that that same pattern ripples at each level. People need to, to, to continue to get the bribes of the dirty money. They need to stay in power. And to stay in power, they need the votes. And to get the votes, they have to let these people, they have to either give these people things or let them do their dirty deeds and not get in trouble. So... In that sense, it does function as a single organization, um, uh, you know, with each level doing its own little things, but as but in a sort of cohesively corrupt from top to bottom. I'm if glad that makes you, sense. yeah, no, it does. In fact, I'm glad you pointed out, you know, uh, the votes that they get, and you know, the suspicion over buying votes. Wasn't even the successor to Bladder? Wasn't there some uh, accusations of that? Uh, I, I forget the gentleman's name who succeeded Bladder, but that he his his votes were bought as well. I mean, it's kind of like who could buy the most votes there to run the whole thing, no? Yeah, well, so he so uh, his successor is an interesting guy named Gianni Infantino, which is uh, he's another Swiss guy. He's not even though he has an Italian name, he's, he's Swiss, and um, he he he's kind of in a sense a carbon copy of Seth Bladder. He grew up in a village six six miles away, I think, from Seth Bladder's village, and. Um, they're both polyglots, speak multiple languages and, and all that, and both have really sort of only worked in sports their whole career. And Infantino uh, ran against a guy from Bahrain and a, couple, and a guy from uh, Jordan, I think, and a few other countries. And his platform basically was patronage. His platform was, well, FIFA hands out money to all the associations every year, but I'm going to increase it by four or five fold. So I'm just going to spill more and more money to you all, which goes back to what I was saying about how they're supposed to distribute money to soccer. But the problem is that there's bad governance. And so when they increase the money to all these organizations, they, most of these officials just pocket it. So what he's saying in kind of a dog whistle coded way is if you vote for me, I will just personally give you more money that you can put in your pocket and do whatever you want with. 
I mean, this is this is you know, uh, with with no uh, disrespect to the late great James Gandolfini, this is uh, Tony Soprano runs FIFA. I mean, that's that's what this is. It's, I mean, it's funny because I just saw uh, the rerun they started. I think it was HBO uh, two nights ago. Uh, the first show on the first season of The Sopranos, you know. So oh, wow. uh, this, the timing of this is perfect. It's, it's exactly <laughs> like that. You know, I, I'm going to give you a way that I think this uh, FIFA could perhaps, some of the corruption anyway, could be uh, prevented or made easier to spot sooner. And then I want you to tell me uh, uh, what you think could be done to, to help FIFA be less corrupt. The Ozanian model goes something like this. It's sort of like the old, uh, the way they were, some people were saying years ago how Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac should be broken up into smaller institutions. And, and, and that is basically break FIFA up. Don't have a huge overseeing governing body. You know, make it 10, if you will, just to pick a number randomly. Small entities, they would be less subject to a larger mob boss dictating down and it would be easier to see exactly what these smaller entities are doing uh and and make them file just like you make a publicly traded company file uh up to the very strict regulations so, you, so you'd have some clear oversight um but you know a lot more about this than i do ken what what do you think a, a plausible remedy could be I mean, I don't think that's. I think that's. I think that's not a bad idea because I think you're right. I mean, I think there's. You know, I think that more daylight certainly is is really important for these. I think more transparency about their finances and what they do is critical. And I think um, uh, taking the power away from a central body, you know, reduces the risk that you get some sort of mob figure controlling it all. Um, the problem, I think, is that the, that the World Cup is still the most valuable, important thing in the sport. And there have been talks over the years about some of these confederations we talked about earlier spinning off and doing their own thing, you know. Um, but ultimately, it still comes back to that FIFA controls the World Cup and everyone that's the most valuable property. And that's what everyone really cares about. And everything in soccer, in this four year cycle builds towards the World Cup over and over again. And, you know, if if everyone if they break up FIFA you know, what happens to the World Cup? When's the World Cup and how is that controlled? And, you know, maybe I'm just riffing here, but maybe the solution is that FIFA still exists, but it only runs the World Cup and it has no other power over the other organizations. Maybe something like that um, might might be a solution. You know, I think that the um, the cleaning up of, of, of these organizations uh, criminally is a start, but it's sort of like you're just fixing the, the most broken of toys. And I think that... Um, what we're seeing is that it's a little bit like the war on drugs, right? Or whack-a-mole. You get rid of one, you get rid of one narco boss, another one comes in, and I think we're seeing that. I think that fundamentally, that the message being sent is, you know, be be more careful, be more subtle, but the opportunities are still there, and I think that that's no good. Mm, very interesting, Ken. How can people follow you on social media? Um, I have a Twitter account that's been pretty active lately because this trial, um, it's just my name at, at Ken Bensinger. That's been my, I've been sort of firing on all cylinders on that lately. Um, and that's my main place, less than Facebook or something like that. So that's, that's where you want to, you want to see my updates in the trial, which by the way, could lead to a verdict 
uh, real soon. So that should be interesting. Um, so that's that's one place to find me. Um, and then you know my periodic my periodic articles within Buzz at BuzzFeed News on this, and of course as we talked about earlier, uh, the big salami being my book in a few months. Yeah. So maybe we're thinking of something uh, in the spring, something like that. June, 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 I think June tenth or June tenth, something like that. The World Cup, the first match is the fourteenth or fifteenth, and so we're supposed to, we're trying to get out a few days before that. Well, uh, Ken, I hope you consider coming back for uh, round two on the Sports Money podcast after your book comes out. I'd love to talk to you about it. I would love to. I would love to. We'll be sure to send you a copy. Uh, thanks. Uh, the terrific investigative reporter, everybody, Ken Bensinger. Uh, is my special guest today on the Sports Money Podcast. Ken, thanks a million for coming on the show, and I really look forward to checking out your book. Thanks, and I, you know, thanks for bringing up social media. I would encourage anyone who wants to, my direct messages are open, so people, you know, reach out to me with questions, tips, or whatever, because I'm always looking for good stories. I'm following you, Ken. I, I'm tapped in, so I'm going to be staying tuned to your great work. Thanks a lot, pal. Thanks a lot. Take, take care. That's it for this episode of Forbes Sports Money. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a comment or question, please email us at sportsmoney at podcastone.com. That's O-N-E dot com. Podcast One has new shows on our new app. Check out all the cool features to help you explore our exciting new programming, like America's Lakers podcast with Jay Moore, Sessions with Randy Jackson, So Random with Corinne Olympios, Attack Each Day, the Harbaugh's podcast, Not Just Sports with Susie Schuster and Rich Eisen, and Sound of Success, the Dick Enberg podcast, as well as your old favorites like The Lady Gang, Steve Austin, Shaquille O'Neal, and Adam Carolla. Get the new Podcast One app in the App Store, Google Play, or PodcastOne.com. And now, a thought from Geico Motorcycle. It took 15 minutes to click on the banner ad entitled, You Won't Believe What These Child Stars Look Like Now. Be dissatisfied, and kind of sad, about how the child stars look. And now your computer is plagued by incessant pop-up ads. Oh, this can't be good. To add insult to injury, you could have used those 15 clickbait minutes to switch your motorcycle insurance to Geico. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on motorcycle insurance. At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.